Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does, not tra- he does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far as has he removed our transgressions from us. And just to our second reading, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, to chapter 6, verse 2. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you, not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Well, Father God, what a wonderful part of your word that we have in front of us tonight. We pray, Lord, that please you would bless us through your word. Help us to understand the deep and incredible things in front of us. Please open our eyes to understand Jesus, to know him better, to love him more. Father, we pray that your word would be transforming us tonight, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. We pray that it would be for our joy and for your glory. Amen. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Don't answer too quickly. How do you see yourself? Who are you? And what's more, how does God see you when, you look, when He looks at you? How might He feel to you? What does God see when He sees you? I reckon for lots of Christians, we're confident of this. We'd say, I'm a sinner 
and I, I don't deserve to be with God, but Jesus died for my sins and so I can scrape into heaven, I, w- I won't go to hell. But what does God see when He looks at me? Well, frankly, a giant mess. I'm rescued, but man, there must be so much in my life that God's not happy about, so much sin, so much weakness, and, and that's just talking about my present. <laughs> if you think about the past for a second, well, man, somehow I know I'm forgiven, but when God looks at me, man, He can't be happy. What does God see when He looks at you? Let me get a text off, sorry. What does God see when He looks at you? Lust? The guy who lost his virginity in high school, or the girl who still can't control herself with her boyfriend, or greed? Really, if you press me hard enough, you'll know that what I love is stuff and money, I want to get lots of that. Maybe he sees an addict, the guy who's still a a porn addict after years and years and years, or the girl who's a porn addict, uh, but that's supposed to be a guy thing only, right? And so it makes it all the more lonely and hard and, and dirty. Maybe he sees an addict, liar. When God looks at you, does He see a liar, a fake? You're one thing on a Saturday night and another thing on a Sunday. Or maybe you you might say He sees a hypocrite. Careful on the spelling here, right? But you're you're a teacher at EV Kids and at EV Youth and so you, you know how to say all the right things but when it comes to actually doing what you say, hypocrite. Or maybe he sees a coward. When push comes to shove, when given the opportunity to talk about Jesus with the people around you, you chicken out. What does God see when he looks at you? What does he see? Does he see someone who's, you know, you're not going to go to hell, you'll scrape your way into heaven, saved by Jesus, thank you, but is he happy when he looks at you. Friends, tonight's passage is amazing. This is an incredible part of the Bible. I honestly don't know that I've ever been this excited to teach a passage of the Bible as I am about the one that was just read out from us. And there's one verse in particular that really does leap off the page at us, even as you hear it read. Uh, It's the foundation of everything else we see in this passage. Uh, In fact, one Christian writer said of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 that this verse is the key to the whole New Testament. If you grew up in EV Kids, there's a good chance you might have already memorized it, but I suspect that none of us have plumbed the depths of what this verse is saying. So let's go straight for the jugular and jump in at verse 21 tonight, and we're going to see the amazing implications of this verse as it flows out in the rest of the passage. But here it is, look at verse 21, it says, God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's the world-altering thing that that verse shows us. In Jesus, we have a new perfect position before God. 
There's actually two amazing halves to this verse if you break it down. The first one is one that I think many of you will be familiar with. At the cross, Jesus, the perfect sinless one, was treated as the sinner. He became sin. He was treated as a sinner for us. The fancy word that you might use for this, a theological word, is that our sin was imputed onto Jesus. It was placed on him, given to him, credited to him, imputed to him, even though he didn't do it. There's a word for it. Uh, The other day I got to chat to my neighbours about uh, this kind of stuff, actually, Uh, and as you talk to them, they both assumed that Christianity is all about being good. It's all about keeping the rules, don't do good stuff, stay away from the bad stuff and you can get to heaven. That's what everyone would assume, but that's not what this passage is saying. It says that on the cross, God was treating Jesus as the sinner so that He went and faced our judgment for us in our place. So often, if if I said, what's the gospel? What does the Bible teach about how to be saved? People would say, Jesus died in our place to face the judgment for our sin. Now, guys, that's true. (laughs) That is wonderfully true. But that's only half the story in this verse. You've only caught half of it there. Because here's the second thing that this verse shows us. The second half says, so that, that happened so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, yes, our sin was imputed, given to Jesus, placed on Him, but do you see the other thing that was imputed in that verse? Jesus' righteousness was credited, was given, was imputed onto us was given to us at the cross, so that Jesus is judged as a sinner and we are given a whole new position, a whole new status, a new status, perfect righteousness, perfection. And so, if you're in Jesus, what does God see when He looks at you? What does God see when He looks at you today? Does He see the life of your sin and all those things we wrote up there? in a sense, no. It's gone. Fundamentally, that is gone. Sorry, this will take a minute to do, but it's gone. When God looks at you, He doesn't see this stuff, like what Windex, eh? Oh, what a mess. It'll do. Jesus does a lot better job than cleaning us up than I can of this mirror. Oh, man. This illustration just turned into a nightmare all of a sudden. But seriously, when God looks at you, He does not see the record of your sin. He actually sees the righteousness of Jesus and the record is cleaned off better than that. (laughs) Instead, when He looks at you, actually, what He does see, in all seriousness, is the righteousness of Christ. He sees Jesus' life instead of yours. That's what He sees when He looks at you. The theological word for all this is double imputation. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's worth remembering. It's life-changing. See, although we talk about the cross often, I think we miss how huge this is. We don't fully understand how this works. There's a show on Stan, and no one's watching Stan, right? So you've probably never heard of the show, but it's called Your Honor. It's got the guy from Breaking Bad in it. 
and uh, instead of being a meth cook now, he's a judge in a court. Uh, And this judge, he's got a son, and his son, uh, he's a nice-ish kid, I guess, but somehow he manages to get involved in a hit and run, and he kills a mafia boss's kid, okay? So, like, he's an adult teenager. Uh, Anyway, now this judge, he loves his son, and he wants to get his son off the hook, and so what does he do? Well, as a judge, he plots to save his son. Uh, he, He schemes and he's plotting to save this son that he loves because he doesn't want him to go to jail and get killed by the mafia and all that. Now, is that a good illustration of the cross? We're guilty, but God the Father, he loves us, he cares about us, and so he schemes and plots to get us off the hook, to have us declared not guilty, even though we're guilty. Does that illustration work? No. In fact, God hates that kind of injustice. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. God hates that sort of injustice. And so at the cross, God isn't doing some dodgy bookkeeping. He isn't going, well, I know that actually in reality you're guilty, but I'm going to get you off the hook because I really, really like you. Let's just sweep that little bit under the carpet, pretend that didn't happen. No, at the cross, our sin really, really was placed onto Jesus. It was taken off us and placed onto Him. And so Jesus actually became the guilty one and was treated as the guilty one as He died on the cross. And Jesus' righteousness really was placed onto us. It was actually given to us, not by us living a righteous life ourselves, but as a free gift, it's imputed onto us so that God declares us not guilty. When He says there's no sin there to punish, He's actually telling the truth. That's the truth. He's, he's looking at our lives and He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so He declares not guilty because that is who you are. That's, that's how the cross works. God is actually changing our status from guilty to not guilty. And then he looks at us and he says, no sin left to judge, not guilty. Martin Luther said these words about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He said, Lord, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. And so, brothers and sisters, what do you do with this incredible news? Well, remember how your God sees you from now on. Even in your life, as you sin, remain greedy and lustful and addicted and alike, whatever it is, God looks on you and He sees Jesus' perfect life. In Christ, we are actually pleasing to God. What an amazing gift. And so what wonderful assurance flows from that. If you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus, you don't need to fear what the outcome might be between you and God. You can be certain of where you're headed. You can be 100% sure you're going to heaven. And if you don't have that sort of assurance about where you'll head when you die, well, the problem isn't how well you've been living, although that might colour how you see things. The problem is that you haven't understood the cross of Jesus. 
you can have full assurance of where you're headed after you die. Because it's not about in here, it's about what Jesus has objectively done out here at the cross. Verse 21 that we've just read, it it comes toward the end of our passage tonight, but it really is the foundation of everything else that we're going to look at that flows out from there. Verse 21 is like the peak of a mountain, right? And we're going to kind of cascade down the sides of that mountain and see the incredible implications that flow out from verse 21. And so now we're going to leave the language of the law court, the impersonal language of guilty, not guilty, judges and all that kind of stuff. Instead, now we come to the personal, the family. Here's the second thing we see. In Jesus, we we now have a new permanent relationship with God. Pick it up with me in verse 18. Have a look what it says. It's amazing. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was not counting the world, uh, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. There's a beautiful word that comes up again and again there, reconciliation. Reconciliation means to restore a friendship, to, to fix a broken relationship, to renew it. That's what God has done, verse 18 through Christ. Verse 19 actually ties our reconciliation back to what we saw in verse 21. He does it, how? By not counting our sin against us. Not through dodgy bookkeeping as if he's like, well, I know it's there, but I'm going to pretend that you're not guilty. No, no. We saw that he actually takes our guilt and places it on Jesus. And so we're reconciled to God. The thing that would stop our relationship with God is our sin, and Jesus has fully dealt with that. And so we can be fully reconciled to God. It's restored, it's permanently fixed. And so what does all that mean for us in our experience of God? Well, first of all, it means peace with God. No fear of His anger, judgment toward us. We can have peace with God. Second, it means access to His presence. We can actually approach God. We can approach His throne as the King... (laughs) And have confidence. He's not going to throw us out because look at what you did. We have access to God's presence. Finally, it actually means another blessing, adoption into the family of God. So the nature of our relationship with God now isn't, well, your sin's gone, so I guess we can kind of, we we can hang out if we want to. No, no. He actually adopts us into His family. He calls us His children and we call Him our Father God. Can you see how wonderful reconciliation to God is? It's founded on the perfect new position we have in Christ, verse 21, but the experience of it is so much more wonderful than simply going, cool, me and God have got no beef anymore. (laughs) Even in your son, even in your sin, you're a beloved child of God. Let me tell you guys about the time I went to a psychologist This is a little bit scary for me, actually, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, All our long-term pastoral staff at church here, uh, we are encouraged to see psychologists at least once a year, check in and make sure that we're in a good place uh, in our mental health. It's a good thing to do. Psychologists are wonderfully healthy, helpful. Shout out Steph, who's emceeing tonight. Good work for being a psychologist. Anyway, I'd never been to a psychologist before, and to be honest, I was a little bit nervous, maybe even a little bit sceptical. My mum, growing up, was a psychologist, so I knew that they're the crazy ones, not us. 
Um, anyway, I go to see this psychologist. His name's Carlos. He's a great guy. He's a Christian. He was at church here with us. He's from South America, and so he had this accent. You could barely understand him. Uh, and as I arrived there, I didn't know him that well, but he went to hug me again, had me on edge. And so we start chatting for ages. I was talking to Carlos. And then Carlos does this thing. He unzips his pencil case, and he gets out these little Duplo people. Like, you know, Lego, the bigger version of Lego Duplo, pulls out all these people, Right. And he uses these little figurines, and at this point I'm very sceptical, but he uses these to tap into your subconscious as you talk about yourself. And so he says to me, all right, Jono, I want you to, you know, how does God see, what does he say? He says, use these Duplo people, gosh, what did he say? Sorry. He says, what do you like when you're at your best? He goes, use the Duplo people and show me what do you like when you're at your best? And he gets me to show me with the Duplo people. And so this slide here, I took a photo of it at the time because I found it was very interesting. But anyway, here's my photo. That's me on the ground. I'm not having a good time in my sin and my guilt. And that's God, I think maybe as a woman, but don't worry about that. But there's God there. Um, And he's basically pointing the finger at me uh, from the side. There's me in my guilt. This is me. Oh, gosh. Go back a slide. No. What is going? Oh, I'm so sorry. I did me at my best, and then he says to me, thank you, great the psychologist is here, and then he says to me, okay, now show me what you're like at your worst, and so this is what I did with the Duplo people, right, and so there's, go back, go back, go back, there's me at my worst, right, Um, and so there's me in my sin and my guilt, I'm not having a good time, and there's God pointing the finger at me, right, sorry, this is awkward to talk about, I'm all over the place, but that's all right. Um, Now, as we're doing this, right, Um, Carlos eventually says, well, what if this wasn't actually right? What if God were more like this when you're at your worst? And he did that. He does this one tiny thing right, and I go from like Duplo sceptic to crying like a baby. I lost it. I lost it. As ridiculous as it was playing with figurines that day, it reminded me of something profound. God is my loving Heavenly Father. He has reconciled to me, me to Himself in Christ Jesus. He's done it. And so when I'm at my worst, when my sin is so heavy and overwhelming, He's not standing in the corner pointing the finger at me, condemning me. He has me. He's with me. He's close to me even in my sin. He loves me still. And so if you're a Christian, do you see what a wonderful truth this is? It's incredible. What do you do with this truth? Well, in a sense, do is just the wrong word at this point. You enjoy it. You thank God for it. He's yours. You are His. Enjoy the constant, unchanging love that your Father God has for you. Nothing is more precious than that. Now, what if you're not a Christian? What do you do with this if you're not a Christian? Let me use Paul's words in this passage, verse 20, be reconciled to God. There's nothing more, there's no question more important to answer in this life than this, are you reconciled to God? What could possibly stop a person from being reconciled to God, having heard what the offer is? You don't need to do to make this happen. This is a free gift. The offer of a perfect position 
before God and the offer of a perfect, permanent relationship with Him. And guys, here's something worth catching as well. Verse 20, when Paul says, be reconciled to God, did you catch who he's talking to? He's addressing the Corinthian church. This is a church who, on the one hand, a bunch of these people have obviously made some sort of a commitment to follow Jesus, but by the way they're relating to Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus, he's Jesus' representative, it's unclear where they stood with Jesus. And so, Paul is talking to people, actually, who consider themselves Christian, or would have at least called themselves Christian, but his concern is, these guys don't get it. They don't know Him, and so they're not reconciled to God. Now, it might be tonight, as you sit here, you're someone who would think of yourself as a Christian. Do you actually know Jesus? Are you actually God's child? Maybe you're someone who's called yourself a Christian for years and years and years, but as you read about this reconciled relationship which we're supposed to have with God, the family, the friendship that Christians can have with Him, you're not sure that that's actually something you have. Now, if that's the question that's on your mind tonight, well, the answer isn't to spend all your time wondering, where do I stand with God and being all introspective forever and ever and ever, get on your knees, come back to this God, decide today, I want this new position, I want this permanent relationship with God, pray this sort of a prayer, God, I don't know exactly where I stand with you, I'm not sure but I know what I want, I know that I want forgiveness, I want to be your child and so I repent, be reconciled to God. You know, as I wrote this talk this week and thought about these things, I had this genuine fear in the back of my mind. These truths that we've looked at so far tonight almost feel dangerous. I don't know if you sense that, but to tell a bunch of sinners like like you and me that that in spite of our sin and in spite of our stuff-ups, when God looks at us, it's as if He doesn't see our sin, but He sees Jesus... I mean, what will people do with that kind of a freedom? Are people just going to cut loose and be like, whoo, my sin doesn't have any consequences now, let's go nuts? <laughs> well, according to this passage, no, that's not what should happen because of the transforming reality of this next blessing here. In Jesus, we have a new identity. This identity is glued to Jesus, glued to the reality of His death and resurrection. Have a look at verse 14, pick it up halfway through verse 14, down there. It says, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and was raised again. Do you see how our destiny is tied to Jesus' destiny in those verses. He died and so all died, all who were in Christ died. He was raised again and so we are raised to live a new life, to live for Him now. Where Jesus goes, we go. There's the reality. This is talking about our union with Christ. Our identity is fully caught up in Jesus now and so what's happened to Him has happened to us as well. Has anyone here been skydiving before? Who's been skydiving? 
You or you chickens, neither have I. But my wife has, right? Anyway, when you go skydiving, you get strapped into the instructor because they don't just like shove a parachute on your back and go, go for it. You get strapped to a person and for that two minutes, your life is entwined with that instructor completely. If the parachute goes off well, um, then you win, you get to go home. Both of you get to go home. If the parachute doesn't go off, both of you become human pancakes where they go you go. They're skydiving. Where Jesus goes, we have gone. Jesus died and He rose again and so we have died in Him and are resurrected to this new life. This is actually who we are now. Not just a thing that happened back there in history at the cross, but for our whole lives now, we are united to Christ. We're living as new, spiritually resurrected people, Paul says in verse 16, he used to regard people, look at people from a worldly point of view, but not anymore. Verse 17, here's who we are. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's here. The old has gone and the new is here. If you're a Christian, you are a new creation. You're a new person. And this isn't an aspiration to go and try and achieve, this is your new reality now. You are a new creation. This is your identity. See, this isn't just our position, this is our identity as well. This is who we are, resurrected with Jesus. A minute ago, I said some of the things in this passage almost feel dangerous because what if we just go on sinning because there's no consequences? Well, friends, the consequences of your sin, they're a thing of the past, but so too now is living in your sin. That was the feature of who you were in the past. Christians, you have a new identity now and so we need to see ourselves clearly for who we are. And friends, this is actually the primary engine for why Christians should live godly lives. According to the Bible, this is it. You don't obey to get in with God. You don't even obey to stay in God's good books. It's not even primarily obey because you owe some sort of a debt to Jesus, although we do. The primary ethic of the New Testament as to why Christians should live godly lives is be who you are. That's why we live like Jesus. We're living out the reality of our new identity. I think sometimes you actually need to work hard to think in line with reality, don't you? Uh, Like when someone wins an award or something like that, a medal, uh, like Steph Curry who won the finals MVP award this week in the basketball playoffs, they, they say things like, it's still sinking in, I can't believe it, I can't believe this has happened. Sometimes it takes time for our thoughts to catch up with reality. But Paul is saying here, I've explained who you are in Christ, now think that way. You are a new creation. See yourself clearly and it will transform you. And so next time you're tempted to sin, when you just feel like giving up, you're like, who who really cares anymore? When you start to think that way, preach to yourself, remember who you are. Remember that you died to that old way of life. The whole reason Jesus died on the cross and you died with Him was to pay for sin. So don't go back to the very thing that led to... Think clearly, 
Be who you are. But guys, this is relevant not just in our fight against sin, this is relevant in all of life, actually. It needs to shape how you see yourself in all of life. How do you introduce yourself to someone when you're meeting them for the first time? What do we always say? Hello, blah, 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 my name's Jono, what do you do, what do I do? I'm a doctor, I'm an OT, I'm unemployed, although no one seems to lead with that one. Um, But we say what we do as if that's who we are. Who are you? I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a, I'm a woman. That's an important feature of who God created you to be, but it's not the defining thing about who you are. I'm gay, I'm straight. Now, the world will preach at you that your sexual orientation is the very core of who you are. Not according to the Bible. Who you're attracted to in whatever season of life is a small feature of who you are. I'm single, I'm married. Again, this is a significant part of our lives, but and it can actually hurt when this isn't where you want it to be, but fundamentally, it's not who you are. It isn't what defines us. Paul is saying that all of those things are actually just background noise. They're small details compared to the thing that actually defines you. In Christ a new creation. Which means, good news, you don't need to live having all those other things defining who you are. And so, your job is a long way from defining who you are. Your gender, your sexual preference, your relationship status, none of that needs to define who you are. None of it is even close to being the ultimate thing in your life. None of it needs to ruin your life when it's going terribly. And none of it should be at the centre of your life if it's going well. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That's who you are. Okay, here's where we've been. We started at the mountaintop, the foundation of everything else. We've got a new perfect position before God. Secondly, we have a new relationship with God. Thirdly, we have a new identity in Christ. Here's the last and wonderful thing to see. Number four, in Jesus, we have a new mission. Have a look again at verse 18 and see there the mission of Paul and the apostles. Look at verse 18. He says, All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us, Paul and the Apostles, the message of reconciliation. I moved quickly there, but did you catch it? God's doing something in the world. God is reconciling the world to Himself as this news of the Gospel goes out, but Paul participates in it. He has this ministry of reconciliation... And what does it look like to do that ministry of reconciliation? Well, it's actually about a message of reconciliation. That's the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so finally, in verse 20, Paul says that him and the other apostles, they're actually ambassadors. Look at verse 20. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, speaking for Him, be reconciled to God. What's an ambassador? It's someone who represents Jesus. 
You remember back in primary school, back in the day, some year two punk kid would walk into the classroom and he's on office duty, so he's all smug because he's there on the authority of Mrs. Kennedy, the principal or whatever. Mrs. Kennedy's fictional, but you had a principal, right? And he's there and he's got a note and he's like, Mrs. Kennedy says that you have to go to the principal's office. Now, on the playground, this kid's got nothing. You don't have to listen to him. Who cares what he says? But when he comes as an ambassador of Mrs. Kennedy, well, you've got to listen you get messed up otherwise and so you go because he comes with the authority and the power of Mrs. Kennedy herself. Paul and the other apostles, they don't come with just some stuff that they made up, here's some good things, I'll write it down for you, they come with the words and the authority of Jesus himself and so to ignore Paul would be to ignore Jesus. Which is why, by the way, as you've tracked through these chapters in 2 Corinthians, why Paul's so desperate for the Corinthians to see who he is. He's not interested in his reputation for the sake of it, he knows who he represents. He knows that if these Corinthians reject him, ultimately they're rejecting Jesus. And so the ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation, the the ambassador is something that is uniquely for Paul and the apostles, first and foremost, uniquely for them. But it also becomes true for us secondarily as it flows out from that, because we have this text in front of us today, because I get to stand here tonight and explain this part of the Bible to you or any part of the Bible to you, as we read these words and unpack them together, it's as if God, God is, it's not as if God is speaking to us. Because you have this same message sitting in your laps, the words of God Himself ready to share with the world, well then you become an ambassador as well as you carry this message out to a world, a dying world that desperately needs to be reconciled to their Creator. And so, two quick things about sharing the gospel. First of all, our message is actually God's message. As you seek seek to share the gospel, you're bringing God's message. And so, it needs to be the Word of God. That's the thing that brings life and salvation and reconciliation. Now, you don't have to literally like crack open your ESV study Bible in the break room at work and start reading that to people before you're going to really share the message. But this is the message that will be on your lips when you talk about the gospel to people. And this is the message that we'll unpack together when you invite someone to church or life or EC, uh, explaining Christianity. This is the content of our message. We open the Bible together and hear God speak so that God would save people. And guys, second, here's the huge encouragement in all of this as well. We live now in the time when God is actually saving people. Skip down to our last verse there, chapter 6, verse 2. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah. Paul says, uh, for Isaiah says, in the time of my favour, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. So, he's quoting from Isaiah 49 there, and then he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. Now, Isaiah's ministry that he had as as a prophet was one where he would preach the truth about God and for the most part, people 
turned their back against God. They had deaf ears to the message. But Isaiah spoke of a time that would be the time of God's salvation, where the message would go out and people wouldn't turn their back on God, but instead they'd respond and hear the gospel and be saved. And Paul is saying, now's the time. Now's the fulfillment of this promise, when people are no longer going to just ignore God, but repent and come to Him and be saved. Today, right now, is the time that God is saving people in our world. The time after Jesus' death and resurrection, before His return, that time right now is the moment we live in. This is the time that God is saving people in our world. You're at the beach, right? You're hanging out with your mates. It's a beautiful sunny day. The weather's amazing. The barbecue's on. You're having a good time. You turn to your mate. What's the thing you say? What do you say? You know, come on. You're at a wedding. Beautiful day, beautiful weather. What do you say? Day for it. Exactly. Yes, day for it. Well, guys, because of the time in history that we now live in, every day you should get out of bed in the morning and say to yourself, if you're getting out of bed alone, you should say, salvation, day for it. (laughs) You're talking to that person at uni about Jesus, it's day for it. (laughs) Invite that mate from work to church, it's a day for it. Share with your parents why you care so much about Jesus, day for it, right now. Right now is a time in history where God is doing something in His world. He is saving people. He's reconciling them to Himself in Christ. Guys, we heard earlier tonight about eight people who've put their trust in Jesus. The Gospel works. It's not some like imaginary thing that maybe one day God might save people. People are being saved. God is blessing the the work of His Word among us here and He's doing it all over the world as we heard about other places in our globe today and He's using us, His people, to bring that message. What an awesome thing to get caught up into. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank You for the immeasurable blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for our position before You, that You see us with the very righteousness of Christ. We thank You, Lord, that we can call You Father. We're in relationship with You. And Father, we pray that this news that's too good to keep to ourselves, we pray that we'd be sharing it with the world around us. Please, Lord, use us as Your messengers and Your ambassadors to the world that so desperately needs to hear. For Your glory. Amen.